Welcome to Change Starts Here podcast. I'm your host, Dustin Odom. And today's guest is someone whose name, when I, when I mentioned this guest's name to our director of research, she responded with dead silence, jaw dropping, and said, she told me this person and her work has single-handedly changed her perspective on equity on expectations for teachers and what's possible for kids. So if you're someone who is an aspiring teacher, if you're a teacher yourself, if you're an administrator at a building level or a district level, and you wanna see higher performance from your kids, higher expectations from your teachers, today's a podcast and a, a conversation that you definitely need to listen to. Uh, we have an incredibly humbled uh, we have a, a, a an incredibly amazing guest dr christine ruby davies who um doesn't want to be called doctor so we'll work on that i may do that a couple of times today but she's incredibly humble uh, and i just i can't encourage you enough to stick through this so uh christine i almost did it i almost said dr ruby davies christine thank you so much for joining us you're welcome i'm looking forward to it so uh we had a, a guest, uh, a gentleman I got a chance to spend a lot of time with recently, uh, who's a thought leader here in the States, uh, is a guy named Brad Montague. And I, I just love the way he lives and loves people. And recently he shared a story with me about a question that he likes to ask everybody as he gets to know them. Uh, so that he starts off by just explaining, the question he doesn't like is, who are you and what do you do for a living? The question that he loves is, who are you and why do you love what you do for a living? And so I'm going to start there with you. Uh, for those who don't, for the, our people who don't know you, I can't imagine that's a lot of folks, but the folks who don't know you, just tell us who you are and why you love what you do. So I'm Christine Ruby Davies. Um, I was a primary school teacher for over 20 years. And then I was seconded into the university to set up the teacher education programs there. And then from then I've moved into a straight academic role. And the reason I love what I do is because I get to make a difference for kids still. So when I went into teaching, that was always my, um, my major goal, if you like, was that I wanted to make a difference for every kid in my class every year. And I'd feel like a total failure if I didn't think every kid had made large gains every year. And now as a researcher working in the area of teacher expectations, then I hope that I get to influence far more teachers and therefore more students in terms of having them achieve what they're capable of achieving as well. Well, your, your book that I'm really fascinated with and what we're going to spend a lot of time talking about today, Becoming a High Expectation Teacher, raising the bar is fascinating research. And before we dive into the things that you've learned over your years of study and research and teaching yourself, uh, I'm curious, what inspired you to take on this high expectations research? Um, be before I came into the university, I worked a lot in low socioeconomic areas. And I was a deputy principal in those kinds of schools, so I had access to everybody's achievement data. And one of the things that I consistently noticed was that there were some classes where kids made huge learning gains every year and other classes where they didn't. And when you talk to teachers, it became very clear very quickly that it was about expectations. The classes where the kids made big gains were classes where teachers expected them to make big gains. And the classes where they didn't were the classes where the teachers bought into deficit theorizing. So these were kids from poverty backgrounds, their parents didn't care about their education, all of these kinds of stereotypes. And so you got disparate classroom learning environments and then disparate student achievement as well. So that was kind of my inspiration for um, for going into the area of teacher expectations. And this this may not be an accurate representation, but when you talk about, you know, when you're uh, a deputy principal, is that what you all called it, right? A deputy principal, we call it assistant principal, vice principal, you know, a number of different places. So, and you got to see folks data. I picture you 
either in your, we, call, we usually have data rooms or your office at the, the, the building, uh, thinking through, is this just a building specific uh, data point that I'm learning? Or is this something that is countrywide or, you know, the entire universe basically as, as Corey, that is, but worldwide. Um, what's the step that you took? What was the first step you took to really start doing this research? Cause it didn't just like, yeah, you thought about it and then you have a book. What's the first step that you took to start going down this path? Um, I did, I had, when I was teaching, I had a Maori culture group that I trained up with a Maori leader to take to an international children's festival in Turkey. And so these kids were um, low socioeconomic. Um, none of them had ever been overseas and we're going from New Zealand to Turkey. Like this was a really big deal for, for them and for us. But um, I noticed the teachers change in the attitude towards these kids over the year that we were training them up. But I guess that was another step on the journey because I saw with that group as well what those kids could achieve when we had high expectations of them. So at the end of the academic year, which for us ends in December, when they had school prizes, every single one of the academic and sporting prizes went to kids in the Māori culture group. And they weren't kids who were like that before, I can tell you. And then, of course, we were going in April, which was the following year. But I, I saw, you know, I sort of, I had seen it in my class. I'd seen it in other classes. Now I was seeing it here. And then when I went into the university, because I was involved in teacher education, I often went out into schools watching student teachers teaching you know, on their practicum. But I would also often see associate teachers as well. And again, over and over again, I was getting that reinforcement of this is a class, to the point where you could walk in and go, this is a class where these kids are going to make huge gains this year. Oh dear, this is not one of those classes. You could just feel it. You can feel the environment. You can feel the enthusiasm and the motivation of the kids. You just know that those are the kinds of classrooms. Those are high expectation classrooms where kids are going to make huge learning gains that year. So I, I know that we're going to get into it. And this may be a tough question to ask someone who's as deep into the research as you are, but if you could separate yourself from all that you've learned through the research and go back to that moment that you're describing of just your gut instinct of I've got to go look into this research because I know when I walk the halls of any of the schools that I'm walking in, I can tell within, I don't know, I'm going to, you tell me one minute, five minutes, 10 minutes, an hour, something. One minute. One minute. So what, what is it? Um, Again, I, there, the Malcolm Gladwell book, Blink, that talks about just trusting your gut when you walk in. You know, I, I think there's a lot to that, especially in your field uh, that you're most passionate about. And so what is it that you noticed quickly that you felt like was a leading indicator to great performance for all kids? I guess just how happy and motivated the kids are. You, you see that straight away when you go into a classroom. The classroom environment tells you that kind of thing. Hmm. You know, Christine, uh, can you just describe to us as succinctly as possible the, the process, the, the, the study, the study itself before we <laughs> dive into the conclusions of it? Right. So um, when I first came into the university, I only had an undergrad degree. So I had to get a master's and then a PhD. Hmm. And so a lot of this work actually came out of my PhD. And when I started looking at the literature for my PhD, my idea right from the very start was that there are teachers who have high expectations for all their kids versus teachers who don't. So when I started reading the expectation literature, that was what I expected to find. And instead, what I found was that all of the literature was about kids. It was about 
some kids that teachers had high expectations for and some kids that they had low expectations for. And sometimes that was to do with things like race or socioeconomic status or whether they were high achievers or whether they were low achievers. But nevertheless, the focus was on students, not on teachers. And mm. to me, this was a teacher question. It was about are there teachers who have high expectations for all their students versus teachers who have low? And so that became the key question for my um, doctoral thesis because it hadn't been investigated, which really shocked me, I'd have to say. But that's how I began. And so the first stage was was my gut instinct right? Were there actually teachers who could be statistically identified as having really high expectations for their kids? And importantly, the kids actually made large learning gains by the end of the year. Mm. And so then I, I was able to establish that, but then I needed to look more deeply. So what were the beliefs of high expectation teachers versus lows? What were the differences in their beliefs? And what were the pedagogical practices? What were they actually doing in a classroom that differed from each other? So I interviewed all the teachers as well. And I also did observations in their classrooms too, so that I could then establish differences between high expectation teachers and low expectation teachers. And then once I'd done that, I then did an experimental project that I was lucky to get, to get quite a big grant from um, one of our government agencies because they're not easy to get, especially in education. But any rate, I got a grant that enabled me to set up an experimental project. And this project was around, can we actually train any teacher to become a high expectation teacher? So we know what these practices and beliefs are. Can we teach teachers to use these practices and hopefully sway their beliefs when they see that changes in their behavior um, are then reflected in changes in kids' achievement and, and the kids' beliefs as well. And so that became the Teacher Expectation Project. I narrowed down to what I saw as the three key principles that differentiated high from low expectation teachers. And those were using mixed or flexible kinds of grouping, and they're coupled with high-level learning opportunities, and then the warm socio-emotional climate that they created in the classroom. And then the last one was goal setting, which was couched under a group of things like um, goal setting, enhancing student motivation, student autonomy, but also teacher monitoring, giving close feedback, that, that type of thing. So those three key principles became part of the teacher expectation project. And so the book is really about the teacher expectation project. Mm. So let's let's not gloss over that. I mean, you, you stumbled into it with the answer, but what are those three key areas or the key principles of being a high expectation teacher that you discovered? So the first one is around um, using mixed ability grouping and, um, versus using forms of ability grouping. And I need to put this in context, I guess. New Zealand has one of the highest ability grouping rates of any OECD country. Mm -hmm. So, and, and I might add, we have the highest disparity between our highest and lowest achievers as well. Mm -hmm. And to me, this is not a coincidence. But one, so what happens in New Zealand is that in elementary and middle schools, teachers use ability grouping within their classroom. So they decide who's in the top group, who's in the bottom group and so on. And often they'll have four, five, six groups within their classroom. And then when the students go to secondary school, then they're tracked. So 
basically throughout their entire schooling, they're in ability groups. Not one high expectation teacher ability group. And when I did my doctoral research, this was actually, it wasn't mandated in, in education policy, but it was certainly expected that you ability group. So the fact that none of these teachers did really stood out for me. They all did different things with their kids, but none of them ability group. They all used mixed so, ability or flexible types of grouping. Let me let me clarify a couple of things. So one, are, are you telling us that, you know, for years and years and years, maybe for a modern era of education in New Zealand, the the most prominent best practice was ability grouping of kids. Yeah. Yeah, and this so, this would have gone back. I've traced it back to I think 60, 70 years it's been in New Zealand schools. So it's an entrenched practice. Right. So it's it's the way of thinking, right? Uh, uh, there. Yeah. And so you decided to go to the government and say, give me a grant so I can go basically head first into uh, breaking apart uh, the current best practice. Is that correct? Well, up to a point. I mean, the, I, I did say that this is a government funded grant, but it is, an, it is funded by an agency that actually sits outside of the government. Oh, that's okay. I so just, I was just, I, they I, I are like independent, it. but yes, but one of the things that has happened in New Zealand is that, that there are now far more schools using mixed ability grouping and mm. even in secondary schools now as well they're also moving away from tracking too so you know my work has had a big influence on what's happening in schools oh i i have no doubt about that i think where my head goes is we're just having a conversation is there's we have a a lot of folks hopefully most folks that uh, listen to this podcast are either current leaders or believe themselves to be leaders of change regardless of the position and so if i'm listening i'm thinking man i'm sure any of us could step back and say why aren't we doing things a little bit differently in education i just love the fact that you had that and went right after it and so the the ability groups uh i'm sure you got some pushback when you started talking about usability groups what, what's the most common pushback you get uh from folks that you're trying to help become high expectation teachers well you, i mean you get that you get the pushback of but some of them have high ability and some of them have low one of the things that amuses me is that in new zealand quite a lot of the schools use carol dweck's work so they talk, they talk about a fixed mindset versus an incremental mindset, and then they have ability grouping. Well, I mean, that kind of doesn't go together. They can't, you know, and when you point that out, I often get this kind of stunned silence because you can't marry those two. You're either, if you believe in incremental intelligence or that, you know, that you can grow your intelligence, then you should be believing in using mixed ability grouping because that's the way that kids have an opportunity to extend and to reach their capability. Oh, I just for very personal for me, you know, I, I have a, a stepbrother who when we were going through school, I was identified as, you know, and the, the higher group of for math and science, but he's always been a genius for art and anything that was so, like considered soft, he was an absolute genius. And I looked up to him, but our school structure said, no, I don't know if that's the genius we're looking for. And so there, there's a lot of uh, psychological damage that can do over time. Yeah. And so I, that's why I think your work sticks out so, uh, so well to me and my heart. I think, you know, I'm trying to think of the most cynical folks that could be listening that, that we, we teach with. Um, you know, let's just, here's, here's some good pushback would be, uh, so I've got, you know, a very uh, divided class. I have high performers and I have really low performers in my class of kids. If I mix them, how am I gonna properly remediate the lesson for the kids who are currently, let's say a couple grade levels behind from where we need to be? So in, in the teacher expectation project, 
and in workshops that I run with teachers now, one of the kind of key components of teacher expectations and having mixed ability groupings is the salience of ability. So when you have mixed ability groups, ability isn't salient in the classroom every single day for kids. So you're not reinforcing the message every single day, you're in the top group, oh sorry, you're in the bottom group. And whether we call them bananas, oranges or cabbages, the kids know which group they're in. They're not stupid. Mm. When you mix them up, you still offer the kids the same levels of activities. The difference is that the kids can actually choose which activities they want to do. And I get teachers who will say to me, oh, but they'll choose things that are way too hard. They don't. Kids will get frustrated with things that are way too hard. That novelty wears off within a day or so. And similarly, they'll say, oh, well, they'll just choose things that are too easy. Again, that they don't do that for very long because it's boring. They don't want to be bored. <laughs> and also, I always counter that one as well with, and you're the teacher, there's nothing f to stop you saying, how about trying this activity today for a change? And one of the things that we also <clears throat> developed in the Teacher Expectation Project was the idea that rather than saying, we're, you know, I'm pulling out this ability group, you say, I'm running a workshop around whatever skill it happens to be. And if, and anybody who wants to, can come down and engage in my workshop about whatever it is, whatever skill it happens to be. And then, so then you get the kids coming down who need it. You might get the odd one who you think doesn't. But again, as a teacher, you can say, oh, and by the way, Johnny, I think you'd really enjoy this. How about you join in too? The point is that these workshops are changing every day. So the kids in them are changing as well. And again, it's about salience. It's about not reminding kids every single day that they're not so good or that they're way better than everybody else. I mean, the counter, the counter as well is if you have extension activities for the kids who are really bright, does it really matter if Mary decides she's going to have a go at that activity, are you actually going to say, no, 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 you can't do that. That's much too hard for you. Kids can work that out. They're not stupid. Oh, I... and, you, and they haven't had that reinforcement of, from the teacher or from the other kids, that they're just not good enough. So a paradigm that our organization values greatly that we believe is a key to successful uh, student growth is that we believe every kid has genius, right? Not just a few are gifted. And that's simply similar to what you're saying here. I think in part of your research, you talk about the behaviors of high expectation versus low expectation teachers and the importance of you sending messages, both verbal and nonverbal to kids, right? And so to your point, mixed ability uh, and I'm, I don't know if I'm saying that right, but mixability grouping uh, is one very clear message to say everyone has genius here. You all matter equally and you all can aspire to greatness. Would you agree with that statement? Yes. Yeah, exactly. It gives all kids the opportunity to shine in some way. Mm. And there's all kinds of activities that you can set up so that kids might be choosing their activities but again those activities will allow all kids to shine at their level putting my my teacher hat back on I, I feel like it seems like uh quite a bit of work up front for to save a lot of work later is that does that seem yeah, accurate it, that is true it does take a bit of work to set it up but once the classroom's actually operating like that I can tell you that the, the kick, the feedback, the, the oomph that you will get from the kids is worth every minute of setting it up in the, in the first place. Yeah, I think part of the anxiety that I would think of is that, you know, it's, uh, again, another, another uh, paradigm that we think about, it's student-driven versus teacher-driven. And what you're describing in that mixed ability group, I feel like is more student-driven, less teacher-driven because 
I don't have, uh, again, as a teacher, I don't think I have as much anxiety coming into a, uh, what do we call the ability groups where everybody, uh, fixed ability groups, right? Not mixed, but fixed, I guess, in this case of we get the high and the low. Uh, uh, Cause I come in, I'm like, I have my lesson plan for the high. Well, we got that control. I have my lesson plan for the low, have that control. If it's all mixed and I gotta be thinking, you know, to your point, like Johnny, Susie, whatever, wherever they're at, how are they doing? my anxiety goes up but to your point it's probably you know one to two weeks maybe a little longer of diving in making sure you're helping people find their abilities like their own ability activities but eventually to your point kids want to be successful and they want to stretch on themselves they don't want to be bored so they're going to constantly try to find that middle and continue Mm -hmm. to grow right yep that's right and that's where also where goal setting comes in which is one of the other key principles because if goal setting isn't something you've done, then obviously you need to set time aside to do that. So in the teacher expectation project, the teachers would set aside a mon- a set aside a Friday morning where the kids were set up with activities and then they would just pull kids out to go over their goals once a month roughly. You know, how's it going? You know, show me, and, the, and again, If you train kids to set goals with the teacher, they become very adept at it. So when I was doing my doctoral research, I was amazed in a year two class, which is your grade one, one of the teacher, one of the teachers that she was a high expectation teacher and she had her kids coming up to her saying, Miss, I've achieved that goal. I'm ready for the next one. And they were six years old. So their kids know as well when they're ready to go on. So you do need to set aside a bit of time for that. But if the kids are used to working on activities in collaboration with their peers or independently, they'll just get on and do it. And you can, you've got the time to pull kids out and go over what you know, where they are or where they, they need to be next. Right. So the, the first principle of a high expectation teacher is that that uh, flexible ability grouping, right? The second one, and again, it's not necessarily a particular order, but a second one is goal setting. Now, see, if, uh, before I start suggesting some pushback uh, that I've heard or have used probably myself, unfortunately, uh, when I've been in a low expectation mindset, what's the most common pushback you hear from teachers who have not really fully uh, bought into the the idea of goal setting it will be time they'll say well when am i supposed to do that i'm Mm. already so busy in the classroom how do i do that but as i said one of the things that i also noticed in the teacher expectation project as well as in my original work is that the kids in these classes are really happy they're really motivated they really want to learn And so you don't get the behavioral management issues either. So setting them up to go and work on whatever they, whatever it happens to be while you're doing goal setting doesn't take extra time from you. And the kids are happy at any rate because they're, they're working. And if they're, if they're regularly doing goals and revisiting them, then they're excited about the idea that, oh, I'm on to my next goal. I can do this because the focus is on mastery rather than on performance again. It's on acquiring skills, not on, oh, I'm better than you, which is performance. Yeah, I agree. That's something so, I'm trying to work on my seven-year-old, by the way, is uh, when he gets something back, he's like, that's good. But like, it wasn't as good as Alex's best friends. And I think... That's not, everyone has, again, coming back to it, everyone has genius, but to your point, you know, we talk about uh, high expectation, low expectation teachers, that could be the same thing for people because I could be sending him a message. I could be saying, everyone has genius, but you know, you don't don't compete against others, but I could be hyper competitive around him. So he learns, I got to compare myself against other people, right? Yeah, yeah, I mean, people will say to me as well, well, in life, we have to compete. Well, we do, but when kids are going out into life, my idea is that they should have reached their capability. And I think a lot of my work applies to kids from low socioeconomic and ethnic 
minority backgrounds because the minoritized students and low SES students often are the, the gap between them gets wider and wider as they go through school because of the things we do, because of the way we then categorize them as low ability and they're not. They may not have necessarily have had those background experiences, but as teachers, we can fill in those gaps so that the achievement gaps get narrower and narrower so that by the time they leave school, those kids are also achieving at high levels. They're ready to go out into a more competitive life environment, if you like. Mm. So when you when you talk specifically about goal setting, what are the key components uh, from your point of view uh, for, again, a high expectation teacher? What, what do I need to be doing when it comes to goal setting for it to, to run smoothly? In terms of how to set the goals? Oh, for, for instance, that's a good question. So for instance, for me, the, the most effective classrooms, when I think about goal setting, I think about some of the most effective classrooms I've seen that have mastery expectations of learning standards for the individual, and then it rolls up into a class-wide goal. So it's always my individual goal, but we all master it. And then we, so many of our students all master the, the big goal. So it's an I and a we. And so it keeps everybody in the game, right? And supporting each other to right. get there. Yeah. Uh, so that would be one that would stick out in my head. I just was curious from your, your studies, are there any key components to think about as I go into goal setting? Well, one of, the, one of the things that we do in New Zealand is that when teachers begin any lesson, they begin with the learning intentions. So they're sharing the learning intentions with the kids. By the end of this lesson, these are the things you're going to know about or these are the skills you will have developed by the end of this lesson. And then they share the success criteria. So if you've actually achieved that, what will that look like? So the kids are very clear about what the goals are for each lesson and then what they need to achieve. So that's kind of that we level, if you like. Right, and so at the end of it, again, I've heard uh, the same pushback you've heard a few times, which is, I don't have time, I've got to teach. Uh, especially, you know, if you feel like your students are very behind, you know, well behind grade level, um, I've got to teach, I've got to teach, I've got to teach. And so they high expectation teachers, it sounds like give themselves permission and to stop, hit the pause button to focus on goals because they know that slowing down and that moment of reflection is going to catapult them further. Is that correct? Yep, that's right. Because the kids, I mean, one of the things that goal setting does as well is that it breaks the learning down into very specific steps about what the kids need to achieve. So what's next? That's the question for the for the you know for the kids all the time. What's next? Where am I going next? And so, so that's the pathway. Do you notice anything about? Is there any sort of motivation? Uh, so, for instance, I, I taught high school, and I I was shocked that sticker charts matter to students, right? So we put up our objectives throughout the year, and I'd have seniors walk in my classroom when it was not their time, and I taught trigonometry, so there's not a lot of kids that are just really excited at that time to come in, hang out in my class and learn more trigonometry. But they'd walk in and be like, I got that sticker. And they'd bring a friend in and say, look, I mastered that concept, which is, it was hysterical to me. And that's what I wanted, but it was still hysterical to me. Is there anything that you noticed that uh, as we're getting into more advanced goal setting? Uh, is it a sticker chart? Is it a celebration time? Are there any best practices that you've seen? Well, I mean, the, the emphasis in high expectation classrooms is always going to be on achievement of goals, on mastery. So one of the things that used to be quite common in New Zealand was that they would they if you if you put all the skills up on the board on some kind of chart and then you put the kids' names against each of those, then again it becomes very clear that some people are operating at a higher level than other others. So if you have to use stickers I would tend to keep it at an individual student kind of level. And you're celebrating their achievement of goals with them yep. rather than making it a public thing. The public thing is kind of part, that's a performance thing again. It's about, I'm better than you. <laughs> so there, there. if I could have had you 20 years ago, you may have helped me uh, 
uh, cure some of the ailments that I thought we were winning, but to your point, it's that competition piece. So now my my son's competitive side is making that much more sense to me now. Uh, all right, so we talked through flexible ability groupings, first step for a high expectation teacher. Number two is effective goal setting and a process to constantly come back to goals, not just throwing them out there, but revisiting them and learning from it. And then the third key principle is? The, the developing a warm class climate. Mm -hmm. So the importance of that is that the teacher has really, um, really close personal and academic relations with kids. So that's about you know, asking them about what's going on at home or how did their soccer match go or whatever it happens to be. Just taking an interest in, in the kid personally as well as academically. Asking after their mum if she's been sick, that kind of thing. Um, and then with the students, developing collaboration. So it's not just about teacher-student relationships, it's also about student-student relationships. And to come back to your sticker thing, in a high expectation class, the only way that groups would get stickers would be in their mixed ability groups that they had supported each other, worked together, helped each other. So that's how they would gain stickers, if you like, or, you know, praise. It would be about, it's about helping each other you know, and working together to help so that all of us can achieve. I used to be so, so that's proud of stickers and now you've just like, you've killed the sticker idea on my head because to your point, like it's a we, not a me. And I'm so, uh, I'm gonna have to go deal with this after we talk today, figuring out how do I make sure that the classrooms that we get to work with are constantly we and celebrating everyone's achievement versus an individual. Another thing that seems quite common in high expectation teachers classes as well is that they they bring parents in and that can be physically in that I, one of the high expectation teachers in my original research, she'd done a survey of all the parents at the beginning of the year of kind of like what was their, what job did they do, um, what were their interests or hobbies, um, that kind of thing and then would bring people um, parents in to talk about their hobby or their you know to maybe show kids maybe it's an art thing and they can actually take a lesson with the teacher obviously but you know that kind of thing so they're involving parents but also communicating with parents when we did the high expectation project um, one of the one of the factors I, I had talked about was phoning parents to say when their kids have done something good. Because often all that parents ever hear is, your child's done A, B and C, and what are you going to do about it? And one of the parents phoned, uh, sorry, one of the teachers phoned a parent and the parent's immediate reaction was, oh no, what's he done now? And the teacher had rung to say, wow, he's done this, he's doing so well, the parent actually burst into tears on the phone because nobody had ever said anything positive about her kid. So, mm. I mean, part of it as well is bringing parents on board. Another, one of the schools that I worked in, very, very low socioeconomic area, they set up mixed ability grouping with the new entrant class. These are your kindergarten kids, so they're just starting school. Um, and and they set up mixed ability grouping with them so that the kids would come in and choose their reading books each day from a from you know from a selection. But what happened was the parents were coming in as well. They got really excited about the fact their kids were excited and bringing home books to that, that that they could read together rather than just the kid reading them, because that school also developed a system whereby if the book was at their level, it had a green card in it. If we shared the book, it had an orange card, and if it was too hard for the kid to read on their own, then it had a red card, which meant the te the parent read the book. So. You know, I mean, that, that just turned their whole 
reading program around in that school just because the parents got so involved as well because the kids were so excited about their reading. Hmm. That's awesome. I, I would say, uh, you know, listening to you and the three key principles, uh, I know where you live, I think you guys have been incredibly disciplined about uh, staying healthy. And I think that you guys haven't really, you guys still have school in session everywhere, correct? Yep. So obviously in the States and other places across the world, there are places where we've had to move in, in mass numbers to virtual learning. And so before I start thinking about how to uh, help people coming into next year as kids come back into uh, the schools, if you're talking to a teacher or a principal or a district official right now who's trying to listen to this and say, we've got, I wanna be a high expectations educator, uh, but we're in a virtual environment. Can you kind of just take your best uh, uh, suggestions on for each of those areas? What can we try to do in a virtual environment to start living out these principles? Well, I mean, I think one of one of the first things is to make sure that all of the kids have got good computers and access to the internet. I know that that was an issue in New Zealand. We had lockdown for one month. For one month, sorry, <laughs> that was our lot. Um, but um, but um, in that time, the government committed to ensuring that every kid in every home had a laptop that they could use. So, I mean, that's a very basic one, but but if they haven't got access, again, you're creating that disparity between the kids from middle-class homes who have versus other kids who may not have that same access. That's right. a basic one. The other one, obviously, again, you need to create that classroom environment online. So it needs to be an environment, again, where you're using Zoom or whatever you're using, but all of the kids are involved. It's not a one-on-one -on -one kind of situation. It's a class working together, again, to achieve goals. And maybe the goals will differ because you're online. Maybe they will be more we goals than me goals. I'm not sure. We we really have to do a lot. I'm, I'm sorry no, about that. <laughs> I think, you know, if you had the answer, I'm sure you'd be making uh, a lot of money right now or writing a couple of different books. I mean, we're all looking for the answer. I just think, you know, um, we're all listening with our own life, like, from our own experiences. And I just know that one hurdle for folks right now who are or pretty close to becoming high expectation teachers are that. Uh, you know, right now it's just really tough. I've got a virtual environment, so how do I build community? Mixed abilities, that's even tougher. I'm a little nervous about it. It's, it's got to take a lot of courage to, to dive in. Uh, goal setting, okay, I can see that. We've got to figure out where to get the time because I feel like I don't have enough time. And so I'm not looking for you to have the answer. I'm just looking for you to engage in that discussion with us because that's something that obviously is very real for many people right now. Yeah, I mean, I would have, in some ways, with um, online learning, you can provide activities that that kids can work on together in some ways more easily because they can go off into their little chat rooms and things to work on stuff together. But you're still creating that environment of togetherness within the classroom. I would so, see that as important. Uh, my, my wife's an educator and uh, we, you know, looked your book and we've, seen your videos and both of us were just kind of talking getting ready to, to talk to you and she, question that she had is you know as an educator what questions can i ask myself if my practices are falling in the high expectations or falling short of those expectations and she calls it like what are the look fors and so if i'm going to do a quick self-analysis myself how do you coach your teachers or teachers out there to to analyze their own practices to figure out if they are operating in a high expectations manner. I think the first port, port, sorry, the first port of call is the kids. Are my kids engaged? Are they interested? Are they enjoying their learning? Are they making good progress? Those are the kinds of questions that high expectation teachers are going to ask. Are mm. all my kids learning? Are all my kids making good progress? And then, then maybe look more at a fine grain level at their own practice. But I think the kids are always, they're your, they're your litmus test about yeah. whether it's working or not. 
Absolutely. I think before I ask these last couple of questions, I, in one of the videos, you were very clear to point out that in your research, I think it was about a quarter of all teachers uh, you would consider high expectation teachers. Is that accurate? Did I say that correctly? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's one of the things that it, that's interesting to me is that in my very first, my doctoral project, a quarter of the teachers were high expectation and about an eighth were low expectation. And now having done lots of different projects and, and studies and things, that that proportion seems to start, seems to be fairly accurate. So yeah, around about a quarter are high expectation, somewhere between a sixth and an eighth are low expectation. All right, so let's go this, we're gonna go two different angles. So first angle, I am an educator and I am inspired by what I'm hearing today and I want to take the first step or steps to becoming a high expect expectations teacher. What what's your best recommendation so how I how for me to get started? I think the first step is to get rid of ability grouping in some way to get your kids working together on projects. And the easiest way to start that is to have class kinds of projects. So around a social studies or science topic, something that lends itself to the kids working together so that you get that, that cooperation happening with the kids and the excitement over achieving something together, even though that, you know, even when they're mixed ability, they're not working with the kids maybe that they usually do. So there's a product at the end of it that they get excited about. And then gradually introducing the idea of, we're going to have choices of different activities today, and you can choose which activities you want, that's in reading or math, whatever it is. And then, and just build, you've got to build it slowly. You've got to build that culture. Mm. You've got to also build the idea of goal setting into it as well. Well, I think, uh... This just came from our conversation, like an oversimplification is like you said, first, just understanding are all my kids growing? If not, I need to really think what what am I missing to become a high expectations teacher? And for me, I, I, I like the mantra, and this may be, again, oversimplification to a, a brilliant researcher like yourself, but we versus me. And so the we is... It's a, get them in ability groups, like mixed abilities. Like that's a we, let's get it together. And let's accomplish something together. The warm classroom environment, instead of just me, I, I do like the fact that you say, you know, I, as a teacher, need to get to know and really know who my kids are, but it's also incredibly important that it, they know each other and they work well together and they have this warm environment that you've talked about. And then goal setting, ignore any suggestion I made or best practices I talked about. Let's go to yours. And again, it's about a we accomplishment, not a me accomplishment. So I think that that really helps. And I don't know if, I mean, I know that you've probably thought a lot about from the classroom level all the way up to a ministry level or, you know, government level. Uh, if I'm a principal or a district administrator and I, I want I want to uh, have 100 percent. You know, my ideal is 100 percent high station teachers, not 20 to 25 percent. What do you think those steps that I can take today are to start tracking that direction? As do you, you mean from a ministry perspective, or from a, from, a, from like a district? Sorry. Uh, so from a, I'll ask it again. So from a, from a district perspective, if I'm a district administrator and I've got several schools under me. Uh, what what can I do today uh, that can start getting us towards a district level where almost all of our teachers are high performing or have high expectations versus just a quarter of them? Well, I mean, I think I'd go back to the same thing. The idea that that we're not using ability grouping. Mm -hmm. We're not having ability as something that's salient in every classroom. We want kids to be working together so that they're all moving and achieving. And that has happened in New Zealand. We, there are several websites now on our Ministry of Education website that have pages about mixed ability grouping. It is something that's changed here. So yeah. that, that's the first step because it's critical in the teacher's class, but it's also critical at that district level. If you've got a tradition of using ability grouping, it's something that's really hard to break because it's 
a way of thinking as well. It's a, if you've been told it's best practice, then that's how you think about it. So I, I would always say, no matter what level, you're starting with ability grouping. That's great. I appreciate it. Um, one of the, I've been on a lot of different calls this week, uh, and one of the main topics that I keep hearing be brought up, whether it's, you know, uh, federal governments or ministries, right, or state departments or ministries or districts, is the idea of learning loss. And so when our students come back next, after next summer, there's a great fear that a lot of kids are going to be one, two, three grade levels behind where they would normally progress. Uh, do you have any advice for us uh, from your research of how to attack that? Do you mean because they've been away from school, so now they're coming back? Absolutely. Well, I mean, you're just gonna you're gonna have to start start at the very beginning, as they say. Test the kids, see where you know where they're at. Work on the skills from there. You can't really do much else. One of the things, they have done a study in New Zealand, and I, okay, I know we weren't shut down for very long, but, but we, we didn't find loss. They, they did a, they, we found loss in maths, but not in reading. The same thing happened when we had the Canterbury earthquake in schools and Canterbury was shut down for quite a long time. The same thing happened. There was loss in maths, but not in reading. And one of the reasons I think for that is that literacy is everywhere. And a lot of parents do read to their kids and kids read on their own, but parents don't tend to put that same effort into maths. So maybe it's more important to have supplementary resources available for maths to help bring kids up to where they should be. Yeah, that's. I just read a couple of different studies on that this week uh, for the United States specifically, and the research that I've seen at this point tracks with what you you've noticed as well. Uh, is that the that they were surprised that the losses were not as great uh, for reading, but they were pretty significant when it came to math. And so yeah. that's that's really good advice. I appreciate it. Is there anything? I mean, this is. Uh, I don't mean to overstate, you know, the the reach of this podcast, but it's just awesome to have you, especially joining from New Zealand. It's awesome to have you and your wisdom here with us. Is there Thank any you. encouragement you want to give? Is there any last words of wisdom that you'd like to give us that are that you share with your students or just on your mind or heart lately? I mean, I I guess it comes back to that I came into teaching because I had a passion about making a difference for kids. And this research is about making a difference for kids. Just get out there and make a difference for every single kid in your class. Yeah, well, I, I, I can't thank you enough for your sincere passion. I can't thank you enough for caring about students and people groups who are underrepresented. Um, and so uh, the number of lives you've been changing and will change because of work is gonna be uh, innumerable. And so thank you for your dedication. Thank you for all the hard work, but most importantly, thank you for your passion. Um, we really thank appreciate you. it. And uh, we hope to have you back sometime again in the future. So thank you. Thanks for joining us today. Please support us by subscribing to our YouTube channel, cast on Apple or Spotify, and help us celebrate the beautiful, messy work of shaping human potential. 